What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we're still waiting for the full text of the report of Special Counsel Robert Mueller, or really any text. In the meantime, we've been told he did not recommend bringing charges against Jared Kushner in connection with Russian interference in the 2016 election. But that does not mean Jared is innocent of everything. Amy Willens will explain. Also, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. That's the subject of a new show premiering on TV this week. It's a four-hour documentary produced and hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. exploring the years after the Civil War when the defeated South faced revolutionary social change. Eric Foner will comment. But first, Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Kamala Harris are the women in the Senate who have announced campaigns for the Democratic nomination. Our Joan Walsh has been covering the Gillibrand campaign, and we turn to her now. Joan, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation and a CNN political contributor. She worked for six years as editor-in-chief of Salon. We reached her today in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, we used to think of Kirsten Gillibrand as a fairly conservative Wall Street kind of Democrat, at least when she first went to the Senate in 2009 when she won the seat vacated by Hillary Clinton. But now she's running as a Medicare for all, Green New Deal progressive. How authentic has her political transformation been, do you think? Well, I think it's been relatively authentic. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've known her for a while. I've followed her for a while. I spent time with her, not just for this profile, but for other things. And, you know, I've heard her, her origin story and her evolution story. You know, she says that she was really desperate to leave corporate law and that world for politics. She won a seat in a very red, red district uh, in New York. And then when she got her appointment to the Senate, she began to interact with Democrats in other places and credits people for kind of 
bringing her along and educating her, particularly on the issues of immigration reform and, and gun control. She ran in, in a very red district, for instance, championing Medicare for all before anybody was talking about it back in 2006. So there are ways in which she's always been more progressive. She voted against the bank bailout because as somebody with some Wall Street experience, she thought that banks were getting bailed out while consumers and uh, homeowners were being harder hit. So there are ways in which her earlier reputation was slightly incorrect. She's an early advocate of Medicare for all, but You say in your new cover story for The Nation that even more important she's running is something that you call a resistance mom. What does that mean? I think more than any of the other women, and I don't say this either as praise or criticism, I think she really sees herself and identifies with the women who were crushed by the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Uh, Certainly she counts herself among them. She admits that she cried for a long time after Trump's election. She was revived by the Women's March. And she, she she runs as a mom. She talks about being a mom in a lot of different contexts, whether it's talking about childhood asthma rates in the Bronx, which are hideously high, and uh, particularly, understandably, uh, her dealing with family separation policies at the border, you know, talking to boys the age of her sons. So I I think she also makes a very explicitly feminist pitch, which is not to say that the other senators are not feminists, but she leads with it in a way that the others uh, maybe don't quite as much more of a of a feeling tone than a, a policy thing. She's also for a long time been an advocate of paid family leave, something, you know, near and dear to the hearts of, of many mothers who struggle to take care of very young children and, and get back to work quickly at the same time. So there's a way in which that, you know, she's always that's always been part of her identity, but in the aftermath of Donald Trump, I think it's a particularly potent identity. And What exactly does she mean by Medicare for all? Does she support the Progressive Caucus bill introduced by Pramila Jayapal, which covers just about everything? Well, she supports a lot of it. The bill has not been introduced in the Senate. Senator Sanders, I believe, uh, Senator Sanders is taking the lead, but it's not out yet. So I'm going to take some of her reticence with me as being not wanting to get out in front of it. Uh, She supports expanding it to vision and dental care. She supports dropping co-pays. She supports it covering everyone. There were a couple things I could not get answers on. She is an evangelist for it, the way she always has been, believing that if we make it voluntary, and she talks about for four years, people will will volunteer to enroll because it will be a better deal than private for-profit gouging insurance companies are offering us. She's very optimistic about that. When I pressed her on, well, okay, what happens after four years, though, if people say I'd rather stay with my private insurance, et cetera, I didn't get an answer to that. She did say she thought that the Jayapal two-year plan, she did not agree with that. So we're not sure exactly when uh, the Sanders bill will be introduced. It's imminent, uh, I was told, but I do expect she'll be a co-sponsor. Kirsten Gillibrand makes it clear that she is not a socialist. She defends something she calls healthy capitalism, and she attacks what she calls corrupt capitalism, Please explain what she means by these. 
Well, she's very uh, explicit. She, although she talks about her friend Bernie a lot, and they are friends, I believe. Uh, you know, she wants to make clear she's not a socialist. She's a capitalist, but she believes the problems with capitalism come from greed. Uh, and I, you know, when I suggested that greed is kind of part of the system and uh, the system is arranged for shareholder profits, she insisted it doesn't have to be that way and that there's a role for uh, very aggressive and progressive government regulation to curb greed and make capitalism work for more people. But, you know, we, we got into an interesting discussion of the, the uh, Amazon deal in New York uh, that fell apart. She opposed the deal. But she wanted to see some deal, unlike some folks who thought, you know, it was going to gentrify Queens and worsen traffic, et cetera. She was hoping to work something out, but, you know, she really laid into Jeff Bezos for being greedy and wanting the tax breaks and not wanting to negotiate with the community for things like worker uh, representation and union rights and uh, paying into a housing fund and, and other things that came up along the way. So, you know, she's, she's very happy to have the debate and to uh, defend capitalism, but she has a lot of ideas for the way capitalism can be reformed and, and improved. And I think in a lot of those ways, she's similar to Senator Sanders. I mean, Senator Sanders is more of a social Democrat than a socialist. I mean, I admire that he, use, that he still uses the word, but, uh, you know, he's talking about kind of new deal, new new deal level of regulation. So uh, I don't know on policy if how much uh, separates them, but she really embraces the capitalist label and he certainly does the opposite. You say that on the campaign trail, when she talked about the Green New Deal, she got choked up and tearful. Why was that? She talks about it again as a mother and she brings up childhood asthma rates. She really sees the the fate of the universe hanging in the balance and all of our children and grandchildren having to deal with the consequences of our inaction. So she's very passionate about it. She's very, again, she's a great saleswoman for it. Where she and I might disagree and, and, and had a little debate is she describes things like infrastructure as being bipartisan. And certainly you and I are old enough to remember when that was true, but it, but it stopped being true under Barack Obama. And so, you know, the notion of infrastructure and green jobs and cleaning up air and water, uh, she presents as very, very bipartisan, popular ideas. And in fact, polls say they are popular. But in terms of uh, passing legislation, she is a little bit more upbeat than I would be about the possibility of getting Republicans to sign on to this when, you know, they caricature it as being about abolishing cows and misrepresent it and, you know, are, are, are committed to the status quo. But she's very appealing on the, on the campaign trail and, and, and sells it very well. In Iowa, it, it matters quite a bit. There's a lot of problem with agricultural pollution. And I was there, she was there for major, major epic flooding, you know, which a lot of people believe is, is an accessory of climate change. So, you know, she was able to make it very concrete to people. And, and I think that's serving her well on the stump. Last question. She's polling at 1% or even less on some polls of the other Female candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, have been third and fourth after Biden and Bernie, with Beto's often in fifth. How does Kirsten Gillibrand think she could win? 
She would argue, and I would agree with this part, that she that, that polls are really a function of name recognition, and you know she doesn't have it the way the way the others do. But specifically, the way she says she can win is that she both satisfies the base in terms of being sufficiently progressive, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, but has also demonstrated that she can win in red districts. She won she won back a lot of counties in 2018 in New York in her Senate race that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 to Trump. She has demonstrated an appeal to red and purple district voters that she thinks will serve her well, while she can also appeal to base voters who care more about progressive issues. That's the case that she's making. A lot of people say she's a really hard worker. She's impressive on the stump. We shouldn't get caught up in this horse race analysis too early. We should pay attention to credible folks who are running. And I think, I think voters are going to appreciate taking a serious look at her, whatever they decide. Joan Walsh, her report on Kirsten Gillibrand is on the cover of The Nation magazine. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Talk to you soon. There's a new show premiering on TV this week, Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. It's a four-hour documentary on PBS produced and hosted by Henry Louis Gates, Jr. It explores the years after the Civil War when the country struggled to rebuild the South in the face of massive destruction and revolutionary social change. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He was the chief historical advisor on the show. He's the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University, author of many award-winning books, including Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, you say that America in the late 1860s was the first time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy was created. But that's not the way a lot of us learned about the South after the Civil War. Uh, no, that is true. And one of the purposes of this uh, series, this documentary on Reconstruction, is to try to, uh, A, disabuse people of some of the mythology that is still perhaps being taught in schools in various places about Reconstruction, uh, certainly what I learned in school when I was uh, growing up a good while ago, um, and also to provide a different point of view. And that point of view, as you said, is that Reconstruction, when for the first time in our history, African-American men in any num- real numbers were allowed to vote and hold public office, uh, this was a major step in the history of American democracy, and in fact, democracy all around the world. Interracial democracy, biracial democracy, was an extremely rare thing in the 19th century world. And interracial democracy, that of course means black voters, in this case voters who had been slaves a few years earlier, and black candidates. I know that a few years ago you set out to identify all the black men who had been elected to office during Reconstruction. There's a famous Courier and Ives print from 1872 showing the black men in Congress, one senator and six representatives, all from the South. How many others did you find? 
Well, in Congress, there were two black senators during Reconstruction. The first was Hiram Revels, who's in that lithograph, and the second was Blanche K. Bruce a little later. I think there were 14 members of the House of Representatives at one time or another during Reconstruction. Uh, but then you go out to much larger numbers in lesser posts, uh, members of state legislatures. There were several hundred of them. Uh, and then you can go down to school board officials, justices of the peace, you know, sheriffs, uh, tax collectors, you name it. I found, and in a book of mine about 20 years ago, I, I discussed a little, I, I published little capsule biographies of about 1,500 of them, uh, and I'm sure there were other local officials that uh, haven't yet quite gotten into the historical record. So I emphasize maybe about 2,000, I estimate 2,000 uh, African-American public office holders. I'm not talking about newspaper editors. I'm not talking about uh, political party activists. There were more of them. Public office holders of one kind or another, either elected or appointed, about 2,000. And how many black elected public officials were there before the Civil War? As far as I can tell, two, although there might have been one or two more. There was a fellow, both of them were justices of the peace in the north. There was uh, Macon Allen in Massachusetts and um, John Langston, I think, out in Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, There probably were one or two more, but really black office holding was fundamentally unknown before the Civil War. And indeed, blacks could only vote before the Civil War in a handful of northern states, all of them uh, in New England. Uh, where the black population was minuscule. So uh, black political power was really not known very much before the Civil War, and Reconstruction created it. And that, of course, was what led to the violent reaction and opposition to Reconstruction, this shift of political power in the South. It's not that blacks ran the whole South, not at all, but they exercised genuine political power in a in states where which had been slave states up to a few years before. Before we get to the white response to the election of black leaders in the Reconstruction South, I wanted to ask whether among the 2,000 elected black men you discovered during Reconstruction, are there any particularly illuminating people who we should know about? Oh, well, we should know about all of them, basically. One of the, we mentioned before that uh, really there's still a lot of misconception or just lack of knowledge about Reconstruction. Uh, for example, I believe uh, there's a lot of debate, as you know, about Confederate monuments. Uh, I believe there's only one little statue or bust of a black congressman from Reconstruction in the South. That would be Robert Smalls in Beaufort, South Carolina. Uh, somebody sent me an email the other day saying they had unveiled a little plaque about Lawrence Kane, who was a member of the South Carolina legislature from Edgefield County in Reconstruction. But, you know, with 2,000 of them, uh, there's hardly any notice of them in uh, the southern public landscape. This is one of the major problems when you're thinking about Confederate monuments. The whole presentation of history in the South is totally one-sided. You got every Confederate colonel's got a, got a statue on a horse, but um, major black figures, senators, congressmen, and down to local ones get no public recognition uh, whatsoever. Robert Smalls, who I mentioned, was certainly a tremendously uh, important and remarkable person. You know, he was a slave, and very famously during the Civil War, he uh, put his, he, he was a pilot on a little Confederate ship in Charleston Harbor, 
And one night, he put his family, his wife, children, some friends on the ship, and sailed it out and surrendered it to the Union forces blockading uh, Charleston Harbor. And he became a kind of a hero for a while in the Civil War. Later, he went back to Beaufort, where he came from, and became really the local political boss. He was in the legislature. He was elected to Congress. He was in the state constitutional convention. He was at a federal appointment as collector of customs for many, many years, including after Reconstruction. So he's, Smalls is a good example of how a person who had been a slave can actually rise to significant local political power uh, during Reconstruction. There were many, many remarkable uh, black officials, Francis Cardozo's in South Carolina, who really oversaw the establishment of the first public school system in the history of that state. There were people like James Lynch, the Secretary of State of Mississippi, who was renowned as an orator. People would come from miles and miles away just to hear him uh, give his um, give his speeches. But what really struck me in doing this work, and what we talk about, of course, in the series, is these local people. Many of them, we don't know that much about them, but how they kind of stepped up into positions of responsibility and tried to serve the interests of their own people and indeed of the whole uh, of the whole society, justices of the peace, you know, school board officials, people like that. Uh, that's what's really remarkable to me, not the 15 or 16 who served in Congress, but these local guys who um, really emerged almost out of nowhere as far as the historical record is concerned to... Uh, take up the mantle of making freedom something substantive for the black community. And what would you say are the most significant, lasting political achievements of Reconstruction America? Well, of course, the, the most tangible legacy of Reconstruction is the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which really transformed the Constitution some people, including me, call it the second founding. In fact, by coincidence, that's the title of a book of mine that's coming out in the fall, okay. The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. These amendments abolished slavery. In the 14th Amendment, they put into the Constitution for the first time the principle of birthright citizenship, still debated today, equal protection of the law regardless of race. The 15th Amendment tried to guarantee the right to vote for black men all over the country, not just in the South. And these are still in the Constitution. You know, for a long time, they were fundamentally abrogated by the Supreme Court. The South was able to just violate these amendments with the acquiescence of the Supreme Court. But they are still there, and they became the legal foundation for the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s, which is sometimes called the Second Reconstruction. But there are many other legacies of Reconstruction that are tremendously important. The black church as a large independent institution is created during Reconstruction. There have been black churches before, but it's in Reconstruction that it becomes this giant center of the black community, which it remains all the way to the present. Public education in the South for whites and blacks uh, created during Reconstruction. The black colleges which have uh, educated, you know, thousands and thousands of African Americans come out of Reconstruction. Uh, so, you know, uh, the political gains of Reconstruction are later reversed. There's no question about that. The right to vote is taken away around the turn of the century. But these other accomplishments survive. So we should, even though we often get into a frame of mind where we're saying, oh, Reconstruction failed, Reconstruction failed, it didn't fail entirely. Some of it failed 
but it did leave legacies which became the springboard for future struggles. 12 years of Reconstruction and then 75 years of segregation, lynching, denial of the right to vote. How did that happen? I would amend your question slightly to say the rise of Jim Crow segregation lynching didn't occur immediately. We usually say Reconstruction ended around 1877, but there then followed almost a generation of a kind of twilight zone where some blacks retained the right to vote, others didn't. These institutions continued to thrive. There was a deterioration, but not, but history never just ends at one particular moment. It wasn't until really around the turn of the century that racial segregation was fully implemented in the South, disenfranchising, uh, disenfranchisement was fully implemented. And at that point, you have the Jim Crow system fully in place, but that's a generation after the end of Reconstruction. Nonetheless, it happened whether it happened slowly or or quickly may not really be the main problem. It happened because of the violent terrorism, you might really, you should call it, of the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that, which helped to overthrow the Reconstruction governments one by one and to put back into power white supremacist Democrats, who then, over the next years, worked on ways to restore white supremacy in the South. It also happened because of a retreat on the part of the North. There's some debate among historians about how rapid that retreat was. Was it all at once after 1877 or slowly? Again, it may not matter in the long run, but um, I go for the slow uh, explanation that it took a while for this retreat to be fully enforced. The Supreme Court, I mean, I think Reconstruction and its aftermath is a lesson which is certainly relevant today of what can happen to your constitutional rights in the hands of a supreme a conservative supreme court one by one case by case the rights guaranteed in the constitution were whittled away or abrogated by the supreme court until it gave complete carte blanche to the white south to do whatever it wanted in uh, in race relations without any interference from the federal government the pbs show on reconstruction is not exclusively about 19th century America. The video at one point shows white nationalists in Charlottesville marching in the dark, carrying torches, and host and producer Skip Gates asks you whether you believe we as a nation are still undergoing the process of Reconstruction. What's your answer? My answer is that Reconstruction, the term, really means two things at the same time. One, it is a specific period of American history right after the Civil War, whether it ended in 1877, 1880, you can debate that. But it's a time period, like the era of good feelings or the Gilded Age or the Progressive Era. But Reconstruction is also a historical process. It's the process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, the two most important of which were the reunification or the, the you know survival of the nation-state, and the second the destruction of the institution of slavery. And in some ways, we are still trying to come to terms with the consequences of the destruction of the institution of slavery. As you see in that clip of the white supremacist marchers, there are still Americans, uh, too many of them, who really cannot accept the logic of the end of slavery, that black people are equal citizens. So in that sense, we are still living in Reconstruction. We are still fighting over the issues who should have the right to vote? Who is a citizen? How do you protect Americans from terrorism? 
These are all reconstruction questions, and they are right on the front pages of our newspapers today. So in that sense, reconstruction never ended. The New York Times asked Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor who's producer and host of the PBS series on Reconstruction, if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? And his answer was Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, especially the sections about Andrew Johnson. If Trump took the advice of Skip Gates, what might he learn from those sections? Well, that was very kind of Professor Gates. Unfortunately, uh, my impression is that the president of the United States has never read a book, and therefore the chance of him reading this one is fairly remote. Uh, If he did pick it up, he would find that Andrew Johnson was his predecessor, Uh, not in ways that I would praise, but Andrew Johnson as president, of course, he succeeded Lincoln. He was the vice president when Lincoln was assassinated completely opposed any rights for black people. Uh, He opposed congressional actions to protect the rights of black people. He vetoed the first civil rights law in American history in 1866. He told the states not to ratify the 14th Amendment. And he, he helped to formulate some of the arguments against federal protection of the rights of black people that are still used today the idea of reverse discrimination. He didn't use that term exactly, but in the civil rights veto, he said, you know, this bill, which basically created the equal citizenship of black people, gives all the advantage to blacks and none to whites. And this idea that somehow uplifting blacks takes something away from white people is certainly something that Trump has has appealed to. So I think Trump would find a kindred spirit, actually, in uh, Andrew Johnson, even though most historians today really think very uh, poorly of Andrew Johnson, he usually turns up at the very bottom of these, uh, you know, rankings that historians sometimes do, rating the presidents from the great to the uh, abysmal. Now, Trump is giving him a run for his money, so Johnson may be boosted up to be the next to the worst president. But there, I think what Gates is trying to say is we have had in the White House before men who try to build their political career on stirring up racism, stirring up hatred of the other, uh, and appealing to white privilege and white supremacy. The PBS series Reconstruction started this week. There are two two two-hour shows. It continues next week. Eric Foner is the chief historical advisor featured in the series. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Thanks very much. One of the biggest winners in the Mueller report is Jared Kushner. He was not indicted. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's also written for The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post, lots more. She's best known for her work on Haiti, including the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. There'd been a lot of speculation that Jared would be indicted, that his failure to disclose uh, Russian contacts could lead to a perjury charge, or that that Trump Tower meeting with the Russian who promised dirt on Hillary would lead to a violation of the law on campaign contributions. But it all came to naught because uh, because Mueller didn't see a way through to uh, 
to a conviction, I think, so he didn't indict. Even though there is no indictment of Jared Kushner in the Mueller report, we have no idea what is in the Mueller report. There could be a lot of stuff in there that can be followed through to an indictment. But since we haven't seen the report, we don't know. Could Jared still be indicted by someone other than Mueller? I don't believe that the Mueller investigation precludes other investigations. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the Southern District is following this very, very carefully, that specific meeting in Trump Tower. Let's talk about Jared and his life, subjects of a new book, Kushner, Inc., Greed, Ambition, and Corruption, The Extraordinary Story of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump by Vicki Ward. Jared is sort of like Ivanka and the other Trump kids in that his life has been shaped by his father's ego and ambitions. There are some differences between growing up with Charlie Kushner as your father and growing up with Donald Trump. Well, so far, Donald Trump has not gone to prison. And uh, Charlie Kushner did go to prison for 14 months for this Baroque scam he ran against his brother-in-law to try and blackmail his brother-in-law. He hired a prostitute to seduce his brother-in-law. This is all proven in court. And then had them taped together. That is to say, videotaped, not taped together. And then um, sent this to his sister, the brother-in-law's wife, to try and blackmail them into not giving evidence in a case against the Kushner companies. And for that, he went to prison for 14 months. And how did Charlie Kushner do in prison? Well, it was a a white-collar crime kind of prison situation, so it wasn't that bad. And he made a lot of friends and apparently took the opportunity of being in this very kind of special, safe place compared to New York real estate to bond with people and to tell them his maybe not most important secrets, but some secrets, and they told him theirs. And eventually when he left prison and they left prison, he hired them. (laughs) He hired a couple of these guys and he brought them into the firm. And inside the firm, they were known as the felons. (laughs) There was the family and there were the felons. Mm. And then there were a couple of civilians too. And most incredibly of the felons, one of them actually married a top associate in uh, the Kushner companies. So thereby, you know, wedded bliss as well as felony. According to the new book, Kushner, Inc., Ivanka thinks that someday she could be president. This seems, you know, ludicrous to us. Is there a good source for this story? It's attributed to a story that Gary Cohn, the former president of Goldman Sachs, who joined the administration as uh, the top economic advisor to the White House, ostensibly told people, which is what Vicki Ward says. So Gary Cohn told people that Ivanka said she thinks someday she will be president. So let me just review. We don't have this from Ivanka. We don't have this from Gary Cohn. We have it from people that Gary Cohn told. What would you call that? A third-hand reporting or second-hand reporting? I would call it third-hand anonymous source. So to me, it, it, it falls so easily within the realm of the kinds of ideas that float through Ivanka Trump's head okay. that I do believe that she may have said it at some point. 
or that people assume from the high-handed way she acts and going to all these meetings in her father's stead and just showing herself as a very important influencer in the White House, that she may have presidential ambitions. But Gary Cohn might have motivations in telling this story. Possibly. So Gary Cohn almost resigned over Trump's statements about the Charlottesville protesters when he seemed to, the president, seemed to condone the neo-Nazis who were present. And Gary Cohn is Jewish and felt uncomfortable with that, but he didn't quite resign. But then over something more important, which were the tariffs that Trump imposed on steel and aluminum imports, he did resign finally along with Steve Mnuchin. So like so many of the sources in this kind of really ripping story about the Kushner companies, Gary Cohn's not a totally reliable, objective observer. But as I keep thinking to myself from my experience as a reporter, of course, mostly the people who want to talk to reporters are people with some axe to grind and you have to be the sensible person who decides what's real and what isn't real. I would say Vicki Ward does a little less of the sensible person stuff, but it makes the book a very fun read. And one of the other fun parts of Vicki Ward's book is what she has to say about what we might call the good Kushner, Jared's brother, Josh. He too has a glamorous wife. Yeah, Josh married uh, Carly Kloss, the supermodel. Apparently a very intelligent person, as well as being a very successful model. She's been on the cover of Vogue how many times? 40 times, something like that. And uh, that's big. That's really big. Josh Kushner and Carly Kloss both publicly voted for Hillary against Trump, Josh's brother's father-in-law. Oh, and then they went to the Women's March and they went to the March for Our Lives, which was well, the, the March for Gun Control better gun control in this country, both of which have been, you know, not exactly Trump's forts. And how do the wives of the two Kushner brothers compare Carly Kloss and Ivanka Trump? Ivanka had a business before she became top advisor to the president of the United States. And it was a garment business, internationally produced clothing, fairly modestly priced. For working women. Yeah, a fashion producer for working women. And then she, as she was getting closer to the White House and then in the White House, she began to change the the model of that and brand it for like women's empowerment because she became the women's empowerment person in the White House. Whereas Carly Kloss has something called Code for Klossy. Klossy is her supermodel nickname. What she's done is she's established a, I think a 501c3 not-for-profit that teaches high school girls how to code because she became obsessed with coding. This supermodel actually went to classes to learn how to code and she loves coding. And she thought to herself, my God, there are no women in the tech world. I'm going to remedy that. And now it's a a huge phenomenon nationally, I believe. And uh, as with Ivanka, by the way, uh, Charlie Kushner, Josh's father, was very concerned that Carly, too, convert, and eventually she, too, converted. There's one other thing in Vicki Ward's book, Kushner, Inc., that I want to ask you about. Jared and Ivanka and the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, the Dunning-Kruger effect has such a fancy name, and it's a, a study that was done. It describes a psychological phenomenon which leads incompetent people to overestimate their ability because they can't grasp 
just how much they don't know. And of course, when you grow up in the kind of bubble that both Ivanka and Jared grew up in, you you can't know how much you don't know. There's this great scene in the uh, Vicky Ward book where Ivanka is certain that liberal and libertarian mean the same thing. And that although she's at a table of older people who know perfectly well what the two words mean and who define them for her, she insists that they mean the same thing. And she says that she'll take their advice. You know, she'll look it up maybe under the under advisement. But it's true that that Jared famously is always telling people in the real estate business that he could do their job better than they can, that he knows more than they know, that if he were doing their job, it would be done well. He, like his father-in-law, loves to fire people if they don't seem to be promoting his family well enough. And there's something also that Vicki Ward talks about in the book called the reality distortion field, so that this um, Dunning-Kruger effect can be kind of used by by Jared and Ivanka because they're charming, because they're good looking, uh, because they can, as Vicki Ward says, imitate a sense of humor. <laughs> they have so much power and money that wherever they go, they distort the field of reality. They make people believe things that aren't true are true. And they just, they bring their own gravity with them wherever they go. Jared and Ivanka incompetent people who overestimate their ability because they can't grasp how much they don't know. Amy Willens, thanks for coming in today. Thanks very much, John. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.